Olaso. As I mentioned yesterday afternoon, when we do eventually depart from this place, especially for those of us who will be engaged more socially active, with a lot of talking and all the, the affairs and concerns of daily life, it's very, very likely that the, the stillness, the sustained focus, the real samadhi will diminish. It kind of goes with the territory until you've achieved shamatha, then you have a new base camp. But among the practices we're doing here, while the shamatha per se, just those attention skills, will in all likelihood taper off somewhat, uh, the cultivation the, and the experience of the four immeasurables doesn't need to taper off at all. In fact, that can actually take off. So that's something, you know, there's a, there's a balance here. But whether or not that's true will depend in large part on the extent to which we actually cultivate them. So I think especially when we're out socially engaged, dealing with many people and so forth, these four immeasurables can, can in a very practical way be like our four best friends, to be there through thick and thin, through adversity and felicity, but really help us maintain our emotional balance, our equilibrium, our resilience, and not simply get overwhelmed by outer events, but by maintaining this inner, so, mental balance. But that takes place, that is, they can serve us well insofar as we are cultivating these qualities through meditation. So now's the time, so let's go ahead and have a silent session, choosing any of the four that you wish, whatever you find to be most beneficial. If at any time during the session you find your mind simply wandering, becoming vague, then you can always return to shamatha of any of the methods. Restore the sense of ease and relaxation in body and mind, the inner stillness and clarity, and then return to the four immeasurables. Let's practice now in silence.
Let's bring this session to a close. Hola, so. We have a few minutes. Let's see if there's something, lots of luck with this one. Short, not too likely. I think I'll save this one. I saw it, and this one's very long, so let's see. Aha. So maybe we can start, because I would like to end on time here. This is from Malcolm. Yes? Uh, is there a difference in the way the Mahayana Buddhists and Theravada Buddhists understand equanimity, or are there simply different angles emphasized? It's a good scholarly question, and, and I say that with to utter respect. Uh, my sense is that there's a difference in nuance, a difference in ambience. I was just reading a, uh, this, a commentary on the Dhammapada, and overall it's really good, it's wonderful, and it was actually, there was a little preface by my beloved teacher, uh, Balagoda Andana Maitreya, and it was by a very, very qualified, high, you know, certainly very erudite um, Sri Lankan, I'm almost certain Sri Lankan Theravada monk. It's a nice commentary, I've enjoyed it, I'm reading a little bit each night. But he had a translation that I, it made me cringe, a translation of one term. And he was translating, as far as I can tell, he was translating the word kilesa, which I translate as mental affliction. He was translating it as emotion. And he said the ideal now, an arhat has then therefore no emotion. When you develop in this way, then you'll have no emotion. And I just cringed. I thought, oh, that's a terrible, terrible translation. Sometimes it's translated as passion, and I think that's going back to Aristotle, that you'll, you'll have no passion, you'll be dispassionate. The arhat is dispassionate. That's the ideal, total absence of passion. I, I think it's a bad translation, but I understand where it's coming from. But when this highly intelligent monk, Theravada monk, says, presents as an ideal having no emotion, I just feel bad. <laughs> I feel emotion. I feel, oh, that couldn't be what the Buddha had in mind. Please don't translate any of the terms, asava, taints, mental afflictions, hindrances, obscurations. Please don't. I mean, compassion is, certainly comes with an emotion. Does an arhat have, feel, feel nothing of an emotion when he sees a child dying in a fire? The arhat just... That would be subhuman. It would be a radical dehumanization, a loss of something that is wonderfully human, magnificently and virtuously human. So there is something of that. The fact that this could appear in a, you know, a, you know, a commentary by a very qualified, qualified monk, I thought this is suggestive more of the ambience that's taken over in some aspects of Theravada. I don't want to make a big generalization, but this is not some fringy New Age thing. This is by a really qualified monk. So my impression is in the Theravada that when we come to the fourth Brahma Vihara, equanimity, strong emphasis on, in fact, what is called the vedana, vedana, upekka, the equanimity of feeling, that you just, you do really remain at a calm, an evenness, that you're unperturbed by what comes up, you're not flying off the handle, you're not having these emotional gyrations of spikes of excitement and depression and so forth, all of that I understand. So that's the ambience I get. Um, but I would go back, since I've not memorized Buddha Gosa's really definitive presentation of this, um, I do recall, so the near, the, the near enemy, that's for sure, stupid indifference, aloof indifference, that which catalyzes it, 
that which catalyzes it is an awareness of karma. Awareness of karma. That when we see people experiencing great joy, jubilation, great, great success, other people in terrible straits, we bring the awareness of karma and it, it brings a certain evenness to our response. If it goes bad, then it's an aloof evenness. But if it's in, uh, imbued with wisdom, then there's simply an overall understanding that this happens because of karma from past lives now coming to maturation, so it gives a greater sense of equilibrium. That's the impression I get. Okay? If I wanted to give a more definitive answer, then I'd just go right back to the definitive source. I mean, I'd go back, look in the Pali Canon, what's the primary source, and then this great systematization by Buddha Gosa. But in the Mahayana, and then explicitly where I know, what I'm, a little bit know, know what I'm talking about, and we're going to end very, so, very shortly now, um, the, the liturgy which captures it, is and that is may all sentient beings abide in equanimity devoid of attachment for those who are near and aversion for those who are far and of course I'm not speaking about spatial difference but the people I feel close to attachment people I don't feel close to people Ku Klux Klan Nazis hardcore you know etc people who really are on a bad trip oh they're not like me I feel aversion towards them so overcoming that, so that we are, we are free of these imbalances of the I-it relationship of simple attachment to the it that I find pleasurable and aversion toward the it that I find disagreeable. That's the, that's the essence of it. So it's still arising in the, mo in the mode of an aspiration. May we all be free. May we all dwell in that evenness, that even-heartedness that does not fall into the I-it relationship of craving and aversion towards our fellow sentient beings. Right? So I don't see this as incompatible, but my suspicion is there probably is something of a different difference of nuance. Difference of nuance. Uh, my sense is, and you have much more expo exposure of living in Theravada countries with Theravada monks, but my sense is there's a greater emphasis on that calmness, the equanimity, the stillness, the imperturbability uh, as an ideal, a monastic ideal, an overall arhat ideal, an ideal of the tradition as a whole. Not to say it's coldness, because we know that's a near enemy, but nevertheless, really deep calm, imperturbability, just still, even, unmoved, and according to this, according to this commentator, without emotion. It's one. Or, and others, without passion. You go to the Tibetan tradition, and you watch any of the most highly realized teachers you can possibly find, and devoid of emotion, not a word that comes up. Devoid of passion, doesn't come up. Uh, compassion comes up. Warmth, kindness, joy. These, these, tend, to, these tend, tend to be uh, kindness. And of course, you know that these are qual often qualities of great Theravada masters as well. Uh, you know from your own experience. Yeah. And so I'm not suggesting, please, nobody interpret this as, oh, the Mahayanas are really kind, whereas the Theravadas are just really calm. Terrible, utterly misleading generalization I do not make. But we do know from people like the Dalai Lama and other really the most notable that no one could ever accuse them of being devoid of emotion or of passion or of emotion, you know, the Dalai Lama covering his head and weeping when somebody asked what's the quick and easy way to enlightenment. That's passion, that's emotion by gum. But he wasn't embarrassed of it. It was just, it was a sadness. It was a sadness. But that's not, I'll end on this point. Sadness is not a mental affliction. Not in the, in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, not in Indian Mahayana Buddhism. Sadness is not a mental affliction. That's a very important point. 
Remorse, when I've, if I've done something that harmed another being and I look back on it and I feel remorse, that's a virtuous state of mind. It's not a mental affliction. It's a good thing, right? Just don't go overboard with it. Whereas when, at the last Mind and Life conference, I was quite startled when this uh, wonderful man, an outstanding scholar, Rupert Gethin, who is uh, president of the Polytech Society, I, I personally invited him to the meeting, uh, he made the comment, and I'd never heard it before, and I was quite astonished. And I think this relates to your question, and then we'll wrap it up. And that is, he said that according to the Abhidhamma, the Pali Abhidhamma, whenever you feel bad, whenever you feel so dukkha of any sort, it's always tinged with a mental affliction. It is an afflictive mental state, and therefore something to be abandoned. Every virtuous state, every possible virtuous state, is never unhappy. Maybe it can be one of equanimity, probably it's more of joy, but you'll never have a virtuous state that occurs simultaneously with a feeling, an explicit feeling of unhappiness or dukkha. And I listened to that, I said, whoa, that's different. That's, a real, that's an honest difference. That's an honest difference. Because in Mahayana, oh, in the 8,000 Shloka Prachampadamisa Sutra, there is the Taktungu, I don't know the Tibetan, but it was the, the Bodhisattva who was always weeping. Remember that? Oh, Taktungu, always weeping, always weeping. And he was a great Bodhisattva, right? Well, he's not like, what a poor schlump, you know, the guy must be, have a lot of mental afflictions. He's weeping out of compassion. But then that's not considered like, oh boy, I hope I don't become like him. Right? That's a phase to move through and then you go, you go beyond it into compassion. So there are some significant differences there. That's a scholar's, question, a scholar's question to be answered with more thorough research than I've done. But those are some general reflections. And the time is out. I wish you a good dinner, which you are very welcome to enjoy, with or without equanimity including the ice cream.